Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum for conversations that explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Gnode. If we look at different protocols that underlie the internet, like HTTP as an example of one protocol that's used, kind of as an example of platform centralization. What I mean by that is, while the protocol itself is not centralized, it does facilitate the creation of consolidated or centralized services and applications on top of it. And so it seems like centralization or consolidation is something that's difficult to achieve with protocol design. And almost all existing internet protocols, including IP, TCP, HTTP, DNS, amongst uh, many exhibit concentration or platform centralization. And I think we should just put it out there that centralization is a continuum. It's not like centralization or decentralization. And so is decentralization. It's on a continuum. And not everyone agrees on what the right level or type is or how to weigh different forms of centralization against each other or how to weigh potential consolidation against other architectural goals that you may have. And so through open standard bodies such as IETF, which drives a lot of internet standards, we would think one of the goals, or this maybe as a question, is, is one of the goals in protocol designed to prevent mitigate or at least control consolidation of power on the internet and is consolidation bad at the same time consolidation kind of seems like a human thing that happens in many different areas of our lives whether it's in countries and political systems and industries so when we think about protocol design like is the prevention of consolidation kind of an objective that we should be achieving for and is it possible and should we even be wanting to do this so um, there's a lot of really rich things to react to in that set of questions, but let me just uh, throw out a few quick reactions and then we can go deeper if you want. Um, centralization is not always a bad thing. And there is natural centralization that happens, as you said, because of just simple dynamics that have nothing to do with tech. So for example, if you want to get an article from the Harvard Business Review, you probably have to go to this one central place that distributes articles from the Harvard uh, Business Review. Yeah, you could go ask your peer neighbor about it, but they would probably just tell you, I don't know, I'm not an authoritative source. So there's things in the, I'll call it the real world, but that's a little bit of a misleading phrase, things in the non-technical world that are already centralized or that naturally centralize and um, tech doesn't have any need to alter that kind of dynamic in a lot of cases. However, there are certain things that if you centralize them become dangerous or problematic. So if you said, I'm going to centralize the naming of all children born in your country, the, the government is going to decide what the name of every child is. I think a lot of parents would object because they feel like it's their job to be naming their child, not the government's. I'm, I'm deliberately picking an example that's kind of ridiculous, but I'm trying to illustrate kind of the opposite end of the continuum where centralization is clearly kind of silly and there's no good reason to do it. Now, between 
centralization being totally harmless and uh, natural and centralization being totally ridiculous, you have other positions on the continuum. And sometimes centralization is a good trade-off that puts you at a certain position in that continuum. And other times it's not. My own feeling is that when we're talking about the identity of individual human beings, centralization definitely needs some guardrails. And we should be somewhat suspicious of it. Because you can easily end up in situations where an organization basically strips away a person's identity. All of us have seen movies, which are based on real life experiences of obnoxious government officials demanding to see somebody's identity papers. And um, there are all kinds of scary situations that go along with those interactions whether it's you're going to get hauled off to prison or you're going to be prevented from crossing a border or you can't get a job or whatever. So centralizing some things may make sense and not others. And identity is an area where there should be yellow flags, not red flags, but there should be yellow flags and we should be cautious. I like that you use the, although maybe it's a far-fetched example of child names, but it does some it relates to identity and even we could think about like for example we've seen a lot of financial censorship happening and someone's finances are kind of tied to their identity as well so it's kind of all tied together so how would we determine you mentioned these trade-offs how do we determine these trade-offs like is it it would be interesting just from kind of an architecture perspective how, how do we look at it is it more of an art is it more of a science how, how do we look at weighing centralization versus decentralization for various components within a system? Well, um, I think the first thing that has to happen is we have to kind of develop a, uh, it doesn't have to be a perfect taxonomy or ontology, but we have to start developing a vocabulary to help us recognize kinds of centralization and putting them in buckets as being similar to one another and thus um, having similar kinds of considerations that apply. So, you know, there's a centralization of providers. Today, we have a centralization of providers of social media functionality and of email functionality and a lot of other kind of technical functionalities. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think is the wrong question. To some extent, it's more of what trade-offs are we making and do we like um, the outcomes of the trade-offs, because I think all of us think it's great that uh, a person can create an account on a social media platform without paying a lot of money and without going through a lot of hoops or approval process. But I think none of us like the fact that uh, it's possible to set up a fake account on one of those things. And it's also possible for the company that's providing these services almost for free to um, exploit their users in certain ways. So we're making trade-offs there. And if we start categorizing the trade-offs, then we can start seeing patterns in whether we like the trade-offs. Do the trade-offs happen at the protocol layer or do the trade-offs happen at the application layer? So I, I love using Gmail, for example, because it does a great job of controlling spam. And I love using Twitter because it allows me to gain access to well-tailored information that I'm I'm looking for. All these use kind of common 
some common sets of protocols. Do we look at these trade-offs from the protocol perspective or do they need to be at a higher layer? Well, um, there are trade-offs made all, all the time all over the place. A simple example of a trade-off that all of us recognize is that certain kinds of user experience is only possible if you have a certain kind of a device or a certain kind of a technical setup. You know, you, you can't watch ultra high def video on YouTube uh, it, on a bad internet connection. Um, so we're making a trade-off there and we're saying we're not going to be as inclusive in providing ultra high def experience because um, the technology just doesn't really support streaming that much data at those low uh, bandwidths. Now, most trade-offs that we talk about and that have been in the press and that people complain about are above the level of protocols. Um, we talk about trade-offs, you know, that legislators can get involved in and say the Consumer Protection Bureau of the United States or this arm of the Canadian government or whatever is going to protect users from these obnoxious trade-offs and make companies accommodate them a little bit better. But I believe there are also pretty significant trade-offs that are not being discussed that actually are down at the protocol level. And this has been an area where I've been kind of waving my hands as wildly as I can trying to get people's attention and saying, it's not necessarily evil to make this protocol choice, but we need to know that we're trading something off when we do it. And we need to acknowledge that and understand what risks we're creating or perpetuating or accepting or hiding by the, the low-level technical choices that we make. It may be worth taking a step back. We're, we're talking about protocols and some that underlie a lot of the things we do in our everyday lives using the internet maybe if we take a step back and we talk about digital identity or digital trust or however however we categorize all the work that we're doing here what is important in protocol design maybe for for the listeners of this like where are we today in creating protocols that will enable us to achieve self-sovereignty and control and all, all of the ethos of, of what we're trying to do here? Does it come down to the authenticity, confidentiality, and privacy type of thing? Like, where are we with protocol design here? And what would you say is important? And maybe we could link that back off to uh, some of the trade-offs that we need to be conscious about. Okay, I'll try to answer this uh, in less than half an hour. <laughs> but it's really a deep question. Um, let me start by just um, saying this, uh, to demystify protocols or to, to make them very ordinary sounding and easy, a protocol is just a recipe for an interaction, okay? And all of us use protocols all the time. If you walk into McDonald's and you want to order a hamburger, you know what the protocol is. You don't scratch your head and say, gee, I'm, I'm uncertain how to express my desire to get a hamburger in a way that somebody here will understand. What's the protocol? You walk up to the, the cash register. There's a person behind the cash register that's staring at you expectantly waiting for you to say something. If you don't say something the, while you stand there, eventually the person behind the counter will say, can I help you? Or maybe they'll say that really quickly if they're inclined to be talkative. But either way, you then say, 
yeah, I'd like a quarter pounder with cheese. That's the number five, but can I get it without any mustard? Uh, you know, whatever. You're engaging in an order giving protocol there. And let's suppose that the person on the other side of the counter says something that's unintelligible to you. So then you immediately switch into a, can you say that again? A clarification protocol. That's a different recipe for a different interaction. And clarification is not a hamburger ordering protocol. It's a generic protocol that all speakers of languages learn. Okay, so you went from the hamburger ordering protocol to the clarification protocol and the person behind the counter, because they know that protocol too, they uh, repeat themselves. And then you say, okay, um, can I pay with a card? That's a payment ar arrangement protocol, not a hamburger ordering protocol. And the point I'm trying to make by using this example is, Human beings, when they use protocols, they are very organic about switching from one to the other. And in order for a human being not to feel frustrated and not to feel manipulated and not, in fact, to just feel those things, but not to actually be manipulated, it needs to be possible for a human being to apply recipes of various kinds in a single context. One of the things I'm concerned about in identity is we're inventing these very rigid protocols for, let's say, exchanging credentials. That's fine. We need a protocol for exchanging credentials, but we defined it very, very, very carefully only for a set of requirements that we have imagined in advance. And what if I say in the middle of uh, exchanging a protocol, I need to talk to you about payment because, oh, by the way, this particular protocol usage, or excuse me, this particular credential usage uh, involves payment. You're going to pay me or I'm going to pay you um, as part of presenting my protocol or presenting my cred credential. Well, there is no provision for that because we have kind of artificially created this this assumption that the way humans are going to use credentials will match what organizations conveniently want to automate. And I think that that that's an example of a trade-off. Um, it's not a trade-off that I like particularly, but I might go along with it if people all agreed that it was a trade-off and we were gaining and losing something from it. But instead, what I'm hearing is like no discussion of that as a trade-off. Everybody just assumes that the only interesting thing you do with credentials is log into organizations. And so the only thing that we can see with those blinders on is the set of use cases that organizations want to talk about and all of the rules that they want to impose on it. And I don't think that's really good for human beings who want to use their identity in natural ways. I like your example of the McDonald's, because even if you're talking about protocols here, there's some protocols that you're choosing to follow because, you know, that's the protocol to follow when you're at McDonald's, but you may be calling some protocols yourself when you have some clarifications to make. For example, you're, you're asking for them to, to repeat something or pro provide a clarification. So there's kind of, I guess, if you look at the power dynamics there between yourself and the uh, 
the employee at McDonald's, although it seems like more and more now you show up there and it's just everything's ordered through machines. But that put aside, there there is some decisioning on the protocol choices that you have yourself and some that you're you're kind of choosing to follow because of the the context you're in and who you're dealing with. And so the the whole question of who drives the protocol choice there, well, it's kind of seems like there's there's some opportunities for both parties in this interaction to drive protocols of their choice to do what they're trying to do. Whereas I guess the general comment that I think you're you're talking about here and what happens when we interact with organizations digitally or just generally on the internet, maybe it's less about the protocol design, but more about how it's implemented through like a specific architecture. Is, is that a fair comment? Sure. Although there's this interesting, it's not like a um, one thing produces the other uh, crisply. It's like these two di- these two things influence one another, um, and sometimes one will be the the earlier influencer, and one will be the later influencer. A preponderance of the ratio, but but the, the, it's not a pure sequence. Let me give you a concrete example of something that I think this is a, a technical protocol uh, design question, but it it impacts humans in interesting ways. HTTP is a protocol that is request response oriented. It was written under the assumption that clients would ask servers for resources. And if you go study the language of the RFCs that that define the rules for HTTP, they'll say, you know, the client is going to request a resource by expressing uh, which URL it's interested in, putting it here, and, and here's headers that can be added in and all that other stuff. But there's this fundamental assumption that it's client and server oriented and that the interaction takes place in units where there's a request from the client and a response from the server. So now let's say that the client tells the server, hey, um, I'd like you to call me uh, uh, when you're ready. Well, that's like outside the bounds of HTTP. There's no provision in HTTP for servers to call clients. So over a period of couple decades, people have scratched their heads and said, how can we deal with that? Oh, well, what we'll do is we'll tell, we'll create the idea of webhooks, which is a clever idea. And basically it means that the client can send an instruction to a server and say, here's where I'd love you to tell me something. And then the server can call this other server that the client has identified whenever it needs to send a signal back to the client. So that, that's kind of a workaround for the fact that HTTP itself doesn't allow servers to call clients. Now, it's a relatively good workaround many times, but it requires clients to run servers because there has to be somebody listening at the webhook. So we basically impose this requirement that anybody who wants to be notified by a server and wants to use HTTP to do it, has to run a server of their own. And this is the kind of thing that creates subtle implications. If you're trying to build a system, let's say, to help disadvantaged refugees in uh, undeveloped countries to use their identity with 
confidence and you say, well, I'm going to use HTTP as the way we communicate, then I'm going to say to you, and how are you going to notify these people who can barely afford to pay the bill for the donated cell phone they were given uh, when they're not running a web server? And then the answer is going to be something like, well, we're going to provide a free service that um, hosts, uh, you know, webhooks for them in the cloud or whatever. It's not that it's not that those answers are impossible to find. It's that those answers increasingly push the limits and become less and less realistic the farther towards the corner cases you go, and that concerns me. So, is it that some of these protocols really just in the way that they were designed, they really prioritize the client-server architecture, which then kind of downstream tends to, I guess, centralize control in hands of the server administrator? Is is that kind of the idea that you're getting across here? And perhaps with a lot of the identity use cases, like we're still prioritizing this client-server model, which has tons of implications in its own. Yeah, and and I'm not uh, I'm not like this vicious critic of client server. It solves lots of great problems, uh, or lots of annoying problems in a great way. I'll say, but it has trade offs in it. One of them is clients can't express errors. In HTTP, there is no way for somebody who's calling a website to just call the website and say, uh, "I have a problem." That's not a thing because in a request response architecture with that's also client server, the only party who expresses errors is the party giving the response, and that's the server. So what you end up with is pretty mature error reporting capabilities when the website is the one reporting the error, but basically no capabilities when the client has to report the error. So let's say you're trying to do your taxes and uh, you're using some website to do it, and the website says you must upload some form of identification that satisfies me. And the client says, you know what? I had a great form of identification two weeks ago, but my thumb got caught up, caught off in an industrial accident, and I can no longer uh, pass your biometric test. So what am I supposed to do now? And the problem is that might exist as a question in the person's head. But there is literally no mechanism in the client-server architecture that lets a client say that. So you say, well, well how can we solve that? Well, um, there can be a support helpline on the website. Well, that's fine. But now you've said something outside the protocol is going to be used to solve a shortcoming of the protocol. Because what should be possible is for a client to say, in the protocol, you've asked me for data and I can't give it to you. What should we do next? Um, that should be an inline thing, in my opinion. Uh, it helps empower people, but we we move it outside because it's not convenient. And sometimes that could be a good trade-off, but I think in other cases, it's really not. I think in the world of identity where I think I shared this with you before this conversation where I, I feel like it's less and less true today, the way people get bucketed into it's like complete tangents, but kind of relates to this, how people get bucketed into different demographic groups or social groups. Um, we see this a lot happening with like election predictions where they say like this, this group um, is, is likely to vote for, for this particular candidate, but it seems like a common trend that's happening more and more is that just identity is becoming less 
easy to bucket in a couple different attributes and it's it's just becoming more and more personalized and I, I don't know if that's just a whole movement that's happening as a result of the internet and access to information and stuff like that but I think it's it's much more um be subjective than just putting it into just one one big bucket like that so when you start talking about identity and to kind of tie it back here to this whole client server example where you're just pushed into one protocol there's there's likely going to be more and more cases where there's more nuance or may, maybe some some different options that you want to have available based on on your own context and just the existing model today i guess with these protocols we're talking through that are utilized through the client server model or maybe a little bit too restrictive for the right type of customer experience that we're looking for today. Um, yeah, but I want to clue into just, or I want to kind of focus on the, like the last few words you said, you said um, it might not be right for the customer experience. And it's actually the assumption that it's a customer experience that bothers me the most. Of course, identity is used when we're customers. And actually, that's a very important use. And I mean, it drives massive amounts of the economy and so forth. And a very similar uh, usage pattern occurs when we are not so much customers as like clients, like let's say of the government. Governments uh, and their citizens and companies and their customers aren't identical in their dynamics, but they're fairly similar in a lot of ways. But I would like a system that also accommodates the notion that two people have to, um, you know, trust each other, where one side isn't a big organization. So what happens then? What happens if we build an identity system that's really great at challenging people to log into organizations? But it doesn't really have any opinion about how to help people um, log into people or how to help organizations log into people. All those are out of scope um, because nobody was interested in those. So we write a standard and we say that everybody needs to be logging in the following way. And we diss everybody who's not and say they're not interoperable and they're not standardized and shame on them. When what we're really saying is all of the login problems that we didn't think about, we have now marginalized. Um, I don't want that to happen. So I want it to be the case, and I'm not down on solving problems for login. We need to do that. But I'm just saying, I want uh, it to also be the case that I can log in to my friend. Um, who's just an ordinary person, and the person that I've now logged into knows who I am as a person, and I know who they are as a person. And I want to be able to demand that the party calling me on the phone who claims they're Microsoft tech support, and uh, they have a really important thing they need to talk to me about, I want to be able to say, great, log in as Microsoft to me and prove that you're Microsoft, and then I'll talk to you. That's a perfectly legitimate thing for an ordinary person to want to do, and nobody's paying any attention to it. I like the term customer experience, I guess, because it does it does reflect the relationship that you just described, whether it's a government to a citizen or an org to a customer. It's kind of that that's the lens that they're looking at it. And I guess at the same time, if you look inside of these like standard bodies and standards that are being pushed and 
even in larger digital identity programs now that we're seeing different governments, they're picking up these standards that come from these standard bodies that organizations are funding and pushing. And you can imagine their incentive is to just continue growing better customer experience or growing their, their top line or whatever they're trying to do. What's the incentive for, for these organizations to start looking at not just that one way organization to customer or government to citizen, but looking at it the other way around or even funding the standards setting for that are going to facilitate kind of protocol interactions between two people, just like we're talking about earlier that if I if I show up to the McDonald's counter, I, I, I do have some relationship with McDonald's, the company, and I'm going to use a payment protocol when I, when I want to pay for for what I'm ordering, but I also do have interactions with the person that's working behind the counter. And I, I do have freedom and I can build trust with them. And the same thing is true when I go to my bank and I'm dealing with a bank teller, I have a relationship with this person as well, which is just completely separate from the relationship that I have with the, the bank itself. And so I guess uh, all this to say, like, how do we drive the right standards or protocols that will allow for these more flexible interactions to happen if the incentives are just sitting with the organizations that are trying to just grow their existing models? I think a big part of the answer to that question, this is not a, a full answer by any stretch, but it's an important part of it, has to do with the time scale that you analyze incentives on. So if what you're trying to do is maximize next quarter's revenue, which is very much what most leaders of most um, publicly traded companies around the world do decide a lot of things on, uh, that's their basis for the decision-making, then you're going to get one kind of an answer. If you say the time frame that I want to see a payback is you know, let's say three to five years, you'll get a different answer. And if you say, I want to see a payback in two decades, you'll get yet another answer. And I feel like a big part of the challenge here is trying to get people to accept longer timeframes because a lot of value can be unlocked, but in many cases, you unlock that value with a patient and somewhat selfless investment for today and tomorrow. And it pays you back, but it pays back, and it pays back very impressively, but it pays back over a long period of time. There are companies who really believe in this and they'll do almost anything to you know, satisfy a customer, but there are also companies who don't believe in this and won't do uh, a lot to satisfy a customer. And I'm not saying that one category of company is right and the other is wrong, I, I, but I wish we had more that were in the category of really wanting to be good to the customer for the long-term relationship. Uh, there's a famous story. Um, I don't know if you've heard of um, Zappos, but it's a, a company that sells shoes over the internet. And it's, it decided to double down on the corporate value of customer service. So you could get shoes from lots of different companies on the internet, but if you wanted absolute white glove service and a hardcore commitment to make you happy as a customer, they wanted to be the ones you thought of. 
And the mythology of the company is, and I don't know if this mythology is true or not, but Tony Hesse, I think is his name, the CEO who founded this, wrote a book, Delivering Customer Happiness or something like that. Anyway, his mythology was that somebody called their tech support line, and maybe it was him, and said, you know, I'm not happy with these shoes. And by the way, I want a pizza delivered to my house. (laughs) And the tech support person actually arranged for a pizza to be delivered to this person's house because that's how much they cared about this person saying this was a great company. And you can imagine people who've had that kind of interaction will probably tell their friends, this is a great company. And so there are incentives. They do exist to treat people well and empower them. But they're not the incentives that tend to maximize revenue in the short term. Um, They're incentives that are more like, if we empower somebody, uh, it will unlock their ability to be entrepreneurial and operate with freedom on the internet and all kinds of new value will um, be unleashed in the economy as people become more fearless and are able to make power connections with one another and use social media to conduct business without being afraid of surveillance and without being afraid of having their relationships stolen or co-opted by advertisers that are injecting themselves into a precious relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, to your incentive question, I would say, let's look for the incentives on a different timescale and let's be a little bit more willing to defer gratification. It will pay off. It really will. Yeah, although this is a completely different scenario, one one of the use cases I always like to look at is just like Amazon has an e-commerce platform where they had the complete buy-in from their investors that they just had to keep investing and acquiring customers in the short term. So they made no profit, reinvested everything with kind of that longer horizon view that there's going to be big things kind of at, at the end of the rainbow. And they made the decision that it was okay in the short term to sacrifice some some gains for for this long-term stuff. And it seems like seems like the client server model is more complex than a peer-to-peer or the centralized ecosystem architecture. As you explained earlier, like anything that falls outside of just that like one-way request drops you to customer service, creates more costs for the company, creates more costs for the customer. And so perhaps in the long term, you could have a much simpler model with less costs and and more more satisfied people interacting with each other. But I, I wonder in the identity space or digital trust space, if this could be pushed by one organization, or if you really have to have an ecosystem altogether buy into it to really see the the value. Yeah, I think to some extent you need an ecosystem. And that's that's a little bit discouraging because it makes the job hard. But the ray of hope here is that all ecosystems start small. So if you can just get an ecosystem that has enough gravitas, enough users, enough adoption, that people start liking the ecosystem and using it with confidence and getting a lot of value out of it, that ecosystem could spread. 
what I just described is the optimistic view that most of us in self-sovereign identity have held for a number of years, ever since SSI became a thing. Um, the notion that if you do right by people and provide this technology sooner or later, uh, adoption will take off. Um, I've become a little bit discouraged about this vision because I haven't really seen great adoption curves yet anywhere in SSI. That doesn't mean there's no adoption. There is some and it's important. And I'm encouraged that we see some governments uh, now, you know, requiring certain kinds of SSI technologies. That's great, but it's still going slowly. I would love for it to have a big J curve that just suddenly ramps. Maybe that'll happen. I've been trying to um, flip the equation lately and work on the problem of how does an how does an organization prove its identity to people? Not because I think that how does a person prove their identity is uninteresting or a, a bad idea, but because I'm hoping maybe I can add some energy to the ecosystem by working from the other direction as well. It also seems like it's just a newer problem to solve, right? It's like people proving their identity to organizations is something that's been happening for a long time. And there's so much le legacy infrastructure and thinking that's in place today. Like you go to different conferences and you have your traditional identity and access management folks. And they're, they're just seem to be stuck in in this existing mindset. So perhaps it's a bit tougher to to lift it up a level rather than just kind of doubling back down on the existing model and just adding the new shiny thing to it, like a verifiable credential. So just shifting a bit, but all, all this is kind of interrelated. How do power dynamics play a role in trust relationships? People might have trust in institutions, but not necessarily in their, their incentives. And you, you had a good analogy that you wrote in your recent blog post, which I'm going to share in the, the show notes uh, for anyone interested. Uh, I would strongly suggest reading this, but the whole analogy of <laughs> the goblin desks in, in Harry Potter, just to emphasize the differences in power dynamics by various stakeholders and in, in centralized systems. So how, how does the whole concept of power dynamics fit into trust relationships and perhaps what, what could we learn from this to, to help push us in um, a direction that makes sense? Well, I'm not a human psychology uh, expert, but uh, you know, I've lived enough life to realize that I trust people for various reasons and, and these reasons kind of combine and interrelate. Uh, and of course, Trust isn't just one thing, um, it's many things, and there's many dimensions to it and so forth. But a simple example of power dynamics influencing trust. Let's say that we're talking about the relationship between two people who meet and fall in love, Alice and Bob, you know, Alice and Bob meet and fall in love. Many of us have uh, lived through or observed or read literature about relationships between two people who are in love where the power is very uneven. So, um, you know, uh, the Bronte sisters wrote lots of um, books in the 1800s that were romances about very, very rich, wealthy, aristocratic men. And uh, 
women who um, typically were poor and um, yet had very aristocratic backgrounds. You know, their father died suddenly and left them penniless or something like that. And the whole novel is an exploration of what happens when you try to have a romance, but one party has lots of wealth and privilege and power and the other party does not. And it colors things. It just colors things. It it changes how you interpret the other party. It changes what kinds of assumptions you make about what the party could or would do in a given situation. Uh, It changes the options that you have um, if you think about what power is available to you. And let me give you a kind of an extreme example. Let's take some of the issues that we're dealing with in identity that we care about passionately. I'm going to list the three. Um, We care about authenticity. We care about confidentiality. We care about privacy. So we take those three things. Let's, Let's construct two situations where authenticity, confidentiality, and privacy are identical, but the power dynamics are completely different and see what the outcome is. So scenario one, you're called in to a uh, government office and you are a, a refugee and the person at this office wants to help refugees get resettled. And they ask you, you know, do you need any help finding education for your children? Do you need um, help finding a job? What can I do to serve you better? Um, How are you doing on um, your efforts to learn the language, et cetera, et cetera? Okay, this is a power dynamic. There is some difference in the power between the refugee and the government official in this situation, but it's just the natural situational power dynamic difference that, you know, comes from the life circumstance of the refugee. So now let me take the same refugee and say that they're called in to meet with uh, law enforcement who is highly suspicious that the refugee is involved in terrorism. And this police uh, official uh, sits the refugee down in a chair in a dark room and turns a light on shining in their face, cracks a whip in the background, pulls a gun out and uh, brandishes it, um, starts talking about you know, how they're going to influence this refugee's ability to get a job and their children uh, who are in school. It's the same topics of conversation in a way, but the power dynamics are drastically different. And they're not different just because um, the refugee is a refugee and the government official is a government official. They're different because the government official is deliberately using the power differential to manipulate and intimidate the refugee. So power dynamics influence trust. If we go back to the first situation, what would the refugee confide in and choose to trust the government official for? Some set of things. And if I ask you what set of things in the second situation um, would the refugee trust, you get a radically different set. And that's the effect 
holding all other factors more or less equal, that's the effect of power dynamics. Does governance then come in and help protect interests? Would that would that be the thing that you would want to, to result to? Is that the, the, the magic thing that, that would solve well, this? Because Absolutely, seems- you need governance. And there is governance on uh, law enforcement officials in most countries. Just because governance exists does not mean it's effective. And I deliberately did not uh, identify a country when I was describing my scenario or a law enforcement agency because it could be any country and any law enforcement agency and you get a variety of different outcomes. So, and what that variety would be attributable to would be partly the effectiveness of the governance, not just its existence. So I'm not down on governance. We definitely need that. That is definitely part of the solution. But we also need something at a lower level in identity. And um, the example that I gave before about expressing an error when your thumb can't uh, satisfy the biometric anymore is the kind of thing I'm talking about. I think we need protocols that let people be people. So let me give you another example that's not biometric related, timeouts. In HTTP, a client can call up a server and um, the server will have some kind of a timeout beyond which it won't keep a socket open. And in a Swagger API, you can say when you document the server's thing, you know, there's there's a timeout on this particular operation You, the person who's expressing this, of course, is the voice of the server, though. There is no such thing as a client timeout. Um, I mean, a client can decide to hang up the phone, but that's outside. It's considered outside the the bounds of uh, the protocol. So let me just posit a particular thing. Let's go back to somebody who has... Uh, a cheap cell phone given to them by uh, the government, and they're trying to use a protocol to log in somewhere. And they realize that their phone is almost out of battery. Now, it would be nice if they could say in this protocol, look, we need to finish this protocol in the next two minutes or else I might run out of battery and I can't continue. But a badly designed protocol would say, well, this is really not our concern. We don't care about timeouts from clients. You can express that in a higher level way. You know, you can call us on the phone or whatever. It just creates friction and problems for a user. It is a thing for users to have timing constraints. That's a thing in the real world. Running out of power on your phone and and knowing you only have two minutes of battery left is a real thing. So why don't we design protocols that recognize that the people using them are actually people, human beings with real constraints, and let them tell people or other parties about their constraints? That would be a useful thing we could do. And it's not currently being done in a lot of identity work. Yeah, I <laughs> I love that you brought up the Alice and Bob uh, love story. I think it's possibly one of the great love stories that's not talked about enough and on the same levels as perhaps some Shakespearean late <laughs> romances. But, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Romeo and Juliet have nothing on Alice and Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels though like some of the protocols that we 
employ in our day-to-day lives are driven off of maybe some social norms and like like asking for clarification for example and they're very human things um they become norms so my question is like can can all of these be codified because it seems like what we're talking about here is like to be able to express an error type of example like like you're talking about we need to have the ability for flexible workflows right and perhaps it's less about solving the problem of authenticity confidentiality and privacy but it's the real reason why the internet is broken or the real reason why there's kind of a a weird type of power dynamic that exists today is less about these things but just more about the inability to to have that flexibility and if, if that's true like can can all these protocols be codified because i wonder sometimes if we're able to replicate everything as humans that we do in the physical world without creating more rigid systems uh that's a really insightful question i think I, and i think the the simple answer is no we can't codify everything um we will never build systems that completely mirror the flexibility that humans kind of inherently operate with. But we could certainly get a lot closer. And there's a point of diminishing returns. So this gets back to trade-offs again. How much closer is it worth getting? I think it's worth getting substantially closer than we currently are. Today, we have a very you know, specific way that you pay for stuff. And we have a very specific way that you, uh, let's say, enroll in college. And we do believe it's pretty reasonable. And lots of engineers would agree that paying for something and enrolling in college should be connectable things. Like I should be able to design a workflow protocol or recipe, whatever you want to call it, for enrolling Alice at a university And near the end, I should have a reusable protocol that I can call out to that takes payment with a credit card. Um, Payment happens to be one of the most universal things that you add on to any other uh, protocol, but there's lots of other ones. And if you think about how you kind of move from one thing to the other, my, my feeling is there's a relatively small set of problems, which if you solved them generically, you basically made uh, Legos out of them, you could build all kinds of interesting and very robust and flexible workflows that are friendly to people without solving every conceivable corner case and accommodating every possible thing. The kinds of things I'm talking about are can you negotiate something? This is such a useful primitive. What do you want to negotiate? Well, you maybe negotiate a price. You could negotiate uh, the date on a calendar. Uh, you could negotiate the place of a, a meeting. Uh, you could negotiate which language you're going to speak in uh, with the other person. You could negotiate the version of a protocol that you're going to jointly use. Are we using hamburger purchase 1.0 or hamburger purchase 2.0. If you add negotiation in as a primitive that can be connected, you've solved a general connector problem that's useful almost everywhere. Um, 
a uh, reporting a problem protocol is useful virtually everywhere. If, if we could agree that anytime you get in trouble, here's how you say, I'm having a problem. And yes, the, the specific problem you talk about could be different in many different cases, but at least everybody can recognize that you're having a problem and you need help. That would be really useful. And there's, I, I don't think it's a big list. Um, in six years of working on DITCOM, I've come up with about half a dozen things like that, that if you simply made those primitives of the system, you'd really do an awful lot of good for the world. And so just to finish off, is something like DITCOM, then it's really less about achieving authenticity, confidentiality, and privacy. It's really more about giving any party in any type of interaction the ability to put these Legos together and achieve what they're trying to do versus this unidirectional, often client-server model today. Right. The value proposition of DIDCOM has been de described by people who are not its proponents as being mostly about secure communication. And it's true that DIDCOM cares about security and communication, but it's not true that that's been its, its vital characteristic. And by the way, it doesn't have to be DIDCOM that delivers the thing I'm talking about here either, although I'm a fan of DIDCOM having worked on it. Any approach that we take that humanizes our protocols, that recognizes that people as parties to a protocol have certain needs and allows them to behave in human flexible ways at the boundaries between protocols and that allows trust to flow from protocol one to protocol two in a way that serves human needs is what we want. Whether it's DIDCOM or something else is, is not so much the point. Although, like I said, I hope people uh, like and use DIDCOM. It's a good set of tools for some purposes. But the authenticity was always, and the, the confidentiality and the privacy, those were always secondary to the larger goal of empowering people. Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To stay up to speed with future episodes, or to catch up on ones you may have missed, make sure to check out the SSI Orbit podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and make sure you subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or wish to see someone in particular on a future episode, you can find me by searching Metzger Glode on LinkedIn or Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me directly and I'll get back to you. See you all next time.